The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The British poet Ted Hughes was born in 1930. And in his 40s, during the 1970s, beginning in 1970 and ending in 1983, he published a series of books that I think are sort of unmatched in English poetry. He published a series of major collections through his publisher, Faber and Faber, in England, but also a series of briefer books through small presses, Now, Hughes, like Robinson Jeffers, and like Walt Whitman, and like Emily Dickinson, as I've mentioned, I think they all wrote too many poems. Um, That's just what their bent was. And I don't mean this as a slight to Hughes. His collected poems, however, is 1,300 pages. And for people who try to come to him brand new, of wondering where to start, it can be quite daunting, especially if... The only information you have about him is the suicide of his wife, Sylvia Plath, and the suicide of the woman that he left Sylvia Plath for, Asia Wevel, and she also killed the daughter that uh, she and Hughes had together. If that's your only indication of what Hughes might be about, it can be hard to know quite what to do. But of the 13 poems that I'll be reading from tonight, Ten of them come from those collections that he published in the 1970s. The core of them, I think, is the book called Crow from 1970, the book called More Town Diaries, which is the, the diary of running a farm with uh, his second wife's husband, the book Remains of Elmet, which is sort of a remembrance of the area where Hughes grew up, and the uh, the book Rivers, or I think it's just River, uh, from 1983. If you start with any of those, I think that you will do yourself a grand favor, and you will have a great time. You can also sort of jump around in the smaller books that he published throughout the 1970s and see what you like there. But as I said, many of uh, nearly everything I read tonight will be from that decade and what a decade it was. Hughes, as I said, was born in 1930. He was born in West Yorkshire and he died in 1998. And from 1984 until his death, he was the poet laureate of England, even though I don't really think he published much of anything that was really any good until uh, Tales from Ovid in the mid 90s. And um, depending on on where you land on it, 
the book Birthday Letters in 1998, where he finally talks about his relationship with Sylvia Plath. I won't really be talking about Plath or uh, the suicide of Plath or Asia Wevel or any of Hughes's many uh, romantic entanglements, except to say that uh, if you come at it now, whether from American scholars or British scholars, they seem to have uh, taken the distance of time and they no longer see Hughes as the tabloid, cliche, uh, dangerous man, and they no longer see Sylvia Plath merely as his victim. Um, that has sort of been the exaggerated way of seeing it, and uh, people seem to be moving away from it. The Brits seem to have moved away from it much more quickly than did the Americans. But um, it's an exaggerated view of what basically seems to have been a personal tragedy. And we all know, with what Facebook and Twitter does these days, what happens when we exaggerate or make symbols out of people who were involved in personal tragedies. What I'm here to do, really, is to just introduce Hughes's poetry to those who may have not read it because all they heard was the tabloid version, or because they were daunted by the 1300 pages. Uh, it's worth noting before we get started that uh, growing up in West Yorkshire, he was surrounded with a combination of nature, but also uh, industry, of natural and industrial surroundings. The beauty of nature, but also the terror of what uh, the Industrial Revolution could do uh, to nature. He became aware very early with uh, his father's stories from World War I, and really on up to uh, the deaths of his wife and of Asia Wevel, of just what kind of violence is possible uh, to the human body and in the human heart. And he, when he went to university, instead of studying literature, he studied archaeology and anthropology. And in many ways, he is more after mythology and autobiography than he is after strictly literature. Um, and he never really appreciated how poetry was taught in universities, and he never taught there himself like many other major poets did. And he tried to discourage his own friends who were poets from becoming teachers for many of those reasons. Um, it's worth looking at what the Ted Hughes Society has to say about his poems from the 1970s, because this is a good indication of where we can go. I really don't know of anything like these poems in the English language, and while I am trying to get away from superlatives, I do sort of agree with the critic Michael Hoffman, who referred to Hughes as the greatest poet in the English language since Shakespeare. If you take the best of Milton, if you take the best hundred pages of Milton or of Wordsworth, certainly of anyone in the 20th century, and then the best hundred pages or so of Hughes, I really don't think that there is, uh, that there's really any comparison to be made at all. And this might be the reason why I think so. This is from the Ted Hughes Society. They describe his books of poems from the 1970s. Uh, they are generally occupied with sequences dedicated to the revival of myth in poetry. And this goes from Crow to a smaller book called Cave Birds and Godete. 
with their unusual blend of subversive humor, personal belief system, and ancient lore. Conversely, by the end of the decade, Hughes's poems of and for rural Britain are distinctly unmythical. More Town Diary and the Remains of Elmet demythologize Hughes's agricultural enterprise in Devon when he had a farm with his father-in-law and his childhood landscape, respectively. These collections offer different poetic styles as they report back from the front line of the success and failures of humankind on two very different but equally oppressive landscapes. His 1983 book River takes a similar approach, but Hughes's figuring of the rivers he depicts and the life that depends on them is less terse and more spiritually oriented. And you can see, if you've listened to this podcast before, just why I love what he does. He's about myth. He is about uh, what myth can really do in poetry and why certain myths have lasted in our own culture, and he wants to create new ones. Um, he is about nature and the natural world and about animal life, but he is also extremely unafraid to look at these things honestly, at violence and at death, not cynically, but just honestly. And he does it through narratives, through uh, wonderful lyric poems, through love poems, and so many, many other things. And with that, really, I will let Hughes speak for himself as we go through about 12 poems here. So let's begin with two poems from Ted Hughes' first book, The Hawk in the Rain, from 1957. And you can see right away that he knows what he's doing. This first poem is called Wind. This house has been far out at sea all night, the woods crashing through darkness, the booming hills, winds stampeding the fields under the window, floundering black astride and blinding wet till day rose. Then under an orange sky the hills had new places, and wind wielded blade light, luminous and emerald, flexing like the lens of a mad eye. At noon I scaled along the house side as far as the coal house door. I dared once to look up through the brunt wind that dented the balls of my eyes. The tent of the hills drummed and strained its guy rope, the fields quivering, the skyline a grimace. At any second, to bang and vanish with a flap. The wind flung a magpie away, and a black-back gull bent like an iron bar slowly. The house rang like some fine green goblet in the note that any second would shatter it. Now, deep in chairs, in front of the great fire, we grip our hearts and cannot entertain book thought or each other. We watch the fire blazing and feel the roots of the house move, but sit on, seeing the window tremble to come in, hearing the stones cry out under the horizons. 
And that's a good poem to start with, but wait until later when I read a poem called Rain, and you can see how much he even improved on a poem like this. The second poem takes up one of Hugh's um, great concerns, which is the First World War. His father served in the First World War, and his uncle as well, and even more than World War II, I think his letters or his biographies mention this, um, even World War II doesn't quite have the same effect on him, in part because the memories of how his father was after the First World War and while Ted Hughes was growing up uh, never quite left him. And we can see just what, uh, what an effect it had on him by this poem, which is called Six Young Men. The celluloid of a photograph holds them well. Six young men, familiar to their friends. Four decades that have faded and ochre-tinged this photograph have not wrinkled the faces or the hands. Though their cocked hats are now fashionable, their shoes shine. One imparts an intimate smile. One chews a grass. One lowers his eyes, bashful. One is ridiculous with cocky pride. Six months after this picture, they were all dead. All are trimmed for a Sunday, Sunday jaunt. I know that bill-buried bank, that thick tree, that black wall, which are there yet and not changed. From where these sit, you hear the water of the seven streams fall to the roarer in the bottom, and through all the leafy valley a rumoring of air go. Pictured here, their expressions listen yet. And still, that valley has not changed its sound, though their faces are four decades under the ground. This one was shot in an attack, and lay calling in the wire. Then this one, his best friend, went out to bring him in and was shot too. Then this one, the very moment he was warned from potting at tin cans in no man's land, fell back dead with his rifle sights, shot away. The rest, nobody knows what they came to, but come to the worst they must have done, and held it closer than their hope. All were killed. Here, see a man's photograph, the locket of a smile, turned overnight into the hopeful, into the hospital, of his mangled last agony and hours. See bundled in it his mightier than a man dead bulk and weight. And on this one place which keeps him alive in his Sunday best, see fall war's worst thinkable flash and rending unto his smile, forty years rotting into soil. That man's not more alive whom you confront and shake by the hand, see hail, hear, speak loud, than any of these six celluloid smiles are, nor prehistoric or fabulous beast more dead, no thought so vivid, 
as their smoking blood. To regard this photograph might well dement such contradictory permanent horrors here. Smile from the single exposure and shoulder out one's own body from its instant and heat. Now that is good enough, and I know that um, many people think that Hughes' second book called Lupercal from a few years later is actually his best book. But um, those, I suppose, are the folk who uh, enjoy perhaps Hughes' more uh, respectable poetry. If we go to uh, the next poem in my list anyway, which is Crow's Song About God from the book Crow, written 1970 to 1971, you will see what Hughes has done with war. And um, I don't know, I saw it somewhere, I can't remember quite where, it was an interview with another poet who said that uh, with Crow and the, the books of poetry that came after, Hughes sort of uh, went shamanistic um, he went uh, elemental or alchemical or something, and he left the merely literary poetry behind and into something that isn't talked about in cocktail parties and isn't easily studied uh, in the exam room, I guess. Think about the poem uh, Six Young Men, and now hear what Hughes was doing, what, 13 years later, in Crow's Song About God. The book Crow is worth reading in its entirety, and there are many wonderful little uh, funny stories and horrible stories and brutal stories and graphic stories. Um, and uh, But there's nothing quite like Crow's Song About God. And this is what it says. This is sort of a summation of the 20th century and war, I would think. Somebody is sitting under the gatepost of heaven, under the lintel, on which are written the words, forbidden to the living. A knot of eyes, eye holes, lifeless, the life shape a rudy old oak stump, a ground in the ooze of some putrid estuary, snaggy with amputations. His fingernails broken and bitten, his hair vestigial and purposeless, his toenails useless and deformed, his blood filtering between and the coils of his body, like the leech life in a slime and ochre pond under the smoldering collapse of a town dump, his brain a hacked ache a dull flint, his solar plexus crimped in his gut, hard, a plastic carnation in a gutter puddle outside the registry office, somebody sitting under the gatepost of heaven, head fallen forward like the nipped head of somebody strung up to a lamp post with a cheese wire or an electric flex, or with his own belt, trousers round his ankles, face gutted with shadows, like a village gutted with bombs, 
weeping plasma, weeping whiskey, weeping egg white. He has been choked with raw steak. It hangs black over his chin. Somebody, propped in the gateway of heaven, clinging to the tick of his watch, under a dream muddled as vomit, that he cannot vomit, he cannot wake up to vomit. He only lifts his head and lolls it back against the gateposts of heaven. Like a broken sunflower, eye sockets empty, stomach laid open to the inspection of the stars, the operation unfinished. The doctors ran off. There was some other emergency. Sweat cooling on his temples, hands hanging. What would be the use now of lifting them? They hang clumps of blood clot, varicose and useless as afterbirths. But God sees nothing of this person, his eyes occupied with his own terror as he mutters, My Savior is coming, he is coming, who does not fear death. He shares his skin with it, he gives it his cigarettes, he cuts up its food, he feeds it like a baby, he keeps it warm, he cherishes it. In the desolation of space, he dresses it up in his best. He calls it his life. He is coming. And has anyone written a poem about war and atrocity like that? I suppose you will know uh, by now whether you want to continue listening to this episode. Um, but just because uh, Crow is filled with poems like that, sort of distasteful things about things that need to be said or about the violence that can be done to the body, I thought to include here also one poem from a collection called Godete from 1977 that is a good match for this. And I know of nothing else in the language that is like this either. This is a very short poem from Godete. It says, I skin the skin, take the eye from the eye, extract the entrails from the entrails. I scrape the flesh from the flesh, pluck the heart from the heart, drain away the blood from the blood, boil the bones till nothing is left but the bones. I pour away the sludge of brains, leaving simply the brains. Soak it all in the crushed-out oil of the life. Eat, eat. And that is incredible, too, um, if you can bear to read it or listen to it. Um, there's something that Hughes is able to do talking about the violence and the terror and the suffering that is done to the human body. And in this case, um, you almost imagine um, a serial killer or um, I don't even know what, uh, going down the worst rabbit hole of what is going on here. Um, and I think those kinds of things 
are also the subject of poetry. And I think here we will actually take a break from the poems, and I will insert here something from an earlier episode I did on Ted Hughes, where I read a letter that he wrote to his sister, I believe in 1959, um, or maybe in the early 60s, when he is talking about where the title for his collection called Lupercal came from. And in that discussion, in that letter, is a good explanation, if we are interested in hearing it, of why it is that Hughes suddenly found a need and then found a vocabulary uh, for taking up poems about violence and apparently about ancient violence that never really leaves us, and as well as a kind of pessimistic um, quite hopeless view of what we might call God. I think this is a good thing to hear right now before we get to the rest of the poems that I have chosen tonight. And this is what he wrote to his sister about the book and about the Roman uh, religious feast of Lupercal that the book was named after. And after you begin to listen to Hughes' poetry, or if you just fast forward randomly to nearly any part in this episode, uh, you will discover why I am reading this. This seems to be a good explanation from Hughes on uh, a few or maybe a great deal of the kind of violence and uh, bodily violence and physicality and the natural world and the violence of human life that he focuses on. This is what he writes to his sister in the summer of 1959. The Feast of Lupercal was a Roman festival held on the 15th of February in honor of Zeus as a wolf. Nobody knows how it originated, but it came from Mount Lycaon in Greece and combined sacrifices, the sacrifices of goats and of a dog, originally of a wolf, I suppose. It was mainly a fertility rite. Various bachelors stripped naked and ran a certain course through Rome. Mark Antony ran, and at the end of the race offered Caesar the crown three times. That's in Shakespeare's play. They were splashed with the blood of the dog and of the goats, and then carried thongs cut from the skins of the goats. Women who wanted a child stood in the way of the runners and held out their arms, which the runners lashed with the thongs as they went past. This was supposed to make the women fertile. It's strange how, since the title occurred to me, that an entire vision of life seems to have grown up for me around the notion of God as the devourer. I'll repeat that, because that is important. Uh, you have the idea of young men doing this. You have the idea of uh, it being a major religious festival, this violence and this sacrifice and this blood, and, uh, and the animals associated with it, the natural world. And finally, you have women who want children being associated with this. So you also have what we might call love, uh, romance, the drama of marriage, family, children, all of it bound up in this. And he says, it's strange how, since the title occurred to me, 
that an entire vision of life seems to have grown up for me around the notion of God as the devourer, as the mouth and gut, which is brainless and the whole of evil and from which we can only get certain concessions, but no sermons. The whole idea makes a metaphor of the holy family and logically poses love, all derivatives of mother love, of Mary, you see, as the only protection against evil, the natural appetite of everything living to devour everything else. The lower orders of life do not have any love, no mother love. The adults devour their own offspring as they find them, and their world is entirely evil. When I look through them, almost all the poems I have in this batch are about nothing else but this. God, the creator, isn't protective love, but simply absolute power, the irrefutable authority of the need to devour, to live. So God, in the individual, is his own power and assertion, but as he appears in every other living thing, is evil for this individual. This evil in other beings is not is unalloyed, save by some derivative of a protective mother love. I am not describing it clearly, and I could have said that too. I am not describing it. I am not describing it clearly. Hugh says, because I am not really wanting to talk about it at all. But it seems to me the essential meaning behind everyone's obsession with crucified Christ, with the Virgin Mary, with the questionable character but supernatural force of God, and with the reducing God to simple creative or electrical, unhuman, amoral, devouring, evil energy, and most of all with some vague redemptive heal-all, love, capital L, that it is basically a simple family situation. And that was a mouthful, and Hughes wasn't describing it clearly because he's uh, a poet. The poetry does it. But, um, and that is in his, and uh, the letters of Ted Hughes, page 148 and 149, if anyone wants to go looking for it. Uh, when you get to the violence of Crow, when you get to the, uh, the violence and the difficulty of just being a farmer, or the violence and difficulty of being uh, a husband or a father, or of just noticing how the seasons change, or writing poems about animals, I think you can come back to this page and a half or so of a letter that Hughes wrote in 1959 and learn a great deal from it. So we're back here. Now having heard that, we will now hear two poems from his 1978 book called Cave Birds. Let me find it here. Let me make sure that I haven't skipped any like I did in last week's episode. I have not. Good. So this first one is called A Green Mother. This is what it says. It says, why are you afraid? In the house of the dead are many cradles, 
The earth is a busy hive of heavens. This is one lottery that cannot be lost. Here is the heaven of the tree. Angels will come to collect you. And here are the heavens of the flowers. These are an ever-living bliss, a pulsing, a bliss in sleep. And here is the heaven of the worm, a forgiving God. Little of you will be rejected, which the angels of the flowers will gladly collect. And here is the heaven of insects. From all these you may climb to the heavens of the birds, the heavens of the beasts and of the fish. These are only some heavens, not all within your choice. There are also the heavens of your persuasion. Your candle prayers have congealed an angel, a star, a city of religions like a city of hotels, a holiday city. There, too, I am your guide. In none of these is the aftertaste of death, pronounced poor. This earth is the sweetness of all the heavens. It is heaven's mother. The grave is her breast, her nipple in its dark aura. Her milk is unending life. You shall see how tenderly she wipes her child's face clean of the bitumen of blood and the smoke of tears. And a few pages later is this poem. Bride and groom lie hidden for three days. She gives him his eyes. She found them among some rubble, among some beetles. He gives her her skin. He just seemed to pull it down out of the air and lay it over her. She weeps with fearfulness and astonishment. She has found his hands for him and fitted them freshly at the wrists. They are amazed at themselves. They go feeling all over her. He has assembled her spine. He cleaned each one, he cleaned each piece carefully and sets them in perfect order, a superhuman puzzle but he is inspired. She leans back, twisting this way and that, using it and laughing, incredulous. Now she has brought his feet. She is connecting them so that his whole body lights up, and he has fashioned her new hips with all fittings complete and with newly wound coils, all shiningly oiled. He is polishing every part, he himself can hardly believe it. They keep talking. They keep taking each other to the sun. They find they can easily to test each other, to test each new thing at each new step. And now she smooths over him the plates of his skull so that the joints are invisible. And now he connects her throat, her breasts, and the pit of her stomach with a single wire. She gives him his teeth, 
tying their roots to the center pin of his body. He sets the little circlets on her fingertips. She stitches his body here and there with steely purple silk. He oils the delicate cogs of her mouth. She inlays with deep-cut scrolls the nape of his neck. He sinks into place the inside of her thighs. So, gasping with joy, with cries of wonderment, like two gods of mud sprawling in the dirt, but with infinite care, they bring each other to perfection. Now, I bet you weren't expecting that. As I said in the, the much longer Ted Hughes episode I've done here, uh, you come to the end of that and you say, a happy love poem by Ted Hughes, um, a happy poem at all by Ted Hughes, a happy creation poem by Ted Hughes, um, a wonderful surprise to find that. Um, here's one poem from his 1979 book called Remains of Elmet. Elmet is uh, an area, I believe, near where he grew up that uh, was sort of destroyed by the Industrial Revolution, by the earliest factories. And it's an immensely autobiographical book for him. And it's one of those books that I could have chosen any dozen poems from, but this seems to be representative. And it was first released alongside photographs, and only later, I think, uh, in the early 90s, was it, was it collected and then expanded with uh, two other collections. And this is another instance where I don't quite think that Hughes or his readers quite knew what they had when the book first came out in, what did I say, 1979. And you only really know the full collection uh, later on. But this is a poem called Cock Crows. This is what it says. I stood on a dark summit among dark summits, tidal dawn splitting heaven from earth, the oyster opening to taste gold. And I heard the cock crows kindling in the valley under the mist. They were sleepy, bubbling deep in the valley cauldron. Then one or two tossed clear like soft rockets and sank back again, dimming. Then soaring harder, brighter, higher, tearing the mist, bubble glistenings flung up and bursting to light, brightening the undercloud, the fire crests of the cocks, the sickle shouts, challenge against challenge, answer to answer, hooking higher, clambering up the sky as they melted, hangings smoldering from the night's fringes, till the whole valley brimmed with cockcrows, a magical soft mixture boiling over, spilling and sparkling into other valleys, lobbed up horseshoes of glow-swollen metal from sheds and back gardens, hencoats, farms sinking back mistily till this last spark died and embers paled and the sun 
climbed into its wet sack for the day's work, while the dark rims hardened over the smoke of towns from holes in earth. And that is just incredible to me as well. Uh, just a morning. <laughs> just a description of a morning. Now, for my money, the best book of poetry that Hughes ever did was, again, uh, it was published in 1979 under the title Moortown, and only in the early 90s, I believe, along with um, Remains of Element, was it expanded and uh, sort of saw its full shape. And that is called uh, Moortown Diary, is what it uh, came to be called in its final form. And as Hughes says, in the early to mid-70s, uh, after he remarried, he went to, he and his wife went to, I believe, live with his wife's father, or he came to be with them to manage uh, a farm that they had. And Hughes, and Hughes' father-in-law died. And this book of poems was just meant as a memorial to him. And I think for a while he didn't even consider publishing it at all. But these poems are so incredible. Remember the poem that I began with called Wind. This is the one that I was mentioning. Look at what he does here. Uh, he has sort of freed up his language. Um, he still has the, the music of uh, the Anglo-Saxons, at least to me. He still has that alliterative music in here. But it's freed up somehow. It's freed up with uh, colloquial language, natural language, uh, natural as in natural speech, but also the language of nature. Um, he, is, he is, especially in poems like this and the next one called February 17th, and the one after that, actually these next four, um, where I think he is the only poet that I can really think of who has learned past William Wordsworth and found a new way to write about nature and weather and animals. This is a poem called Rain. Rain, floods, frost, and after frost, rain, dull roof drumming, wraith rain pulsing across purple bare woods like light across heaved water, sleet in it, and the poor fields, miserable tents of their hedges, mist rain, off-world, hills wallowing in and out of gray or silvery dissolution, a farm gleaming, then all dull in the near drumming, at field corners, brown water backing and brimming in grass. Toads hop across rain-hammered roads. Every mutilated leaf there looks like a frog or a rained-out mouse. Cattle wait under blackened backs. We drive post holes. They half-fill with water before the post goes in. Mud water spurts as the iron bar slam burns the oak stake head dry. Cows, tamed on the waste, 
mudded like a rugby field, stand and watch, come very close for company, in the rain that goes on and on and gets colder. They sniff the wire, sniff the tractor, watch. The hedges are straggles of gap, a few haws. Every half-ton cow sinks to the fetlock at every sliding stride. They are ruining their field, and they know it. They look out sideways from under their brows, which are their only shelter. The sunk, scrubby wood is a pulverized wreck. Rain riddles its holes to the drowned roots. A pheasant, looking black in his waterproofs, bends at his job in the stubble. The mid-afternoon dusk soaks into the soaked thickets. Nothing protects them. The fox corpses lie beaten to their bare bones, skin beaten off, brains and bowels beaten out. Nothing but their blueprint bones last in the rain, sodden soft. Round their hay racks, calves stand in a shine of mud. The gateways are deep obstacles of mud. The calves look up through plastered forelocks without moving. Nowhere they can go is less uncomfortable. The brimming world and the pouring sky are the only places for them to be. Field fares squeal over, sodden toward the sodden wood. A raven, cursing monotonously, goes over fast and vanishes in rain mist. Magpies shake themselves hopelessly, hop in the spatter. Misery. Surviving green of ferns and brambles is tumbled like an abandoned scrapyard. The calves wait deep beneath their spines. Cows roar, then hang their noses to the mud. Snipe go over, invisible in the dusk, with their squelching cries. Now, how do you like that? Um, again, there's nothing like that, as far as I know, in the language. Um, it's just incredible. Um, and how do you only choose two poems from this book? I don't know, but these are the ones that I chose. As I said last week, in, uh, or it's the same with Ted Hughes, as I said last week with Robinson Jeffers. Um, even the people who like Jeffers don't seem to like the same poems that I do. And if I look at two anthologies of, of British poetry after World War II and just of English poetry from the beginning, uh, when they include Hughes, it's usually stuff that I don't really get. But the poem that uh, even they agree with me about is this one. It's called February 17th. Again, even, uh, even reading uh, some of Seamus Heaney's poems about being in the farmyard with the animals, I read this poem, February 17th, and then go back to the Heaney, and I'm like, uh, nope, um, even you could not do this with a poem. This is February 17th. 
A lamb could not get born. Ice wind out of a downpour, dishclout sunrise. The mother lay on the mudded slope. Harried, she got up, and the blackish lump bobbed at her back end under her tail. After some hard galloping, some maneuvering, much flapping of the backward lump head and the lamb looking out, I caught her with a rope, laid her head uphill, and examined the lamb. A blood ball, swollen tight in its black felt, its mouth gap squashed crooked, tongue stuck out, black-purple, strangled by its mother. I felt inside, past the noose of mother flesh, into the slippery muscle tunnel, fingering for a hoof, right back to the porthole of the pelvis. But there was no hoof. He had stuck his head out too early, and his feet could not follow. He should have felt his way tiptoe, his toes tucked up under his nose for a safe landing. So I kneeled, wrestling with her groans. No hand could squeeze past the lamb's neck into her interior to hook a knee. I roped that baby head and hauled till she cried out and tried to get up, and I saw it was useless. I went two miles for the injection and a razor, sliced the lamb's throat strings, levered with a knife between the vertebra, and brought the head off to stare at its mother, its pipes sitting in the mud with all earth for a body. Then pushed the next stump right back in, and as I pushed, she pushed. She pushed crying, and I pushed, gasping. And the strength of the birth push and the push of my thumb against that wobbly vertebra were deadlock, a two-fro futility. Till I forced a hand past and got a knee, and then, like pulling myself to the ceiling with one finger hooked in a loop, timing my effort to her birth-push groans, I pulled against the corpse that would not come till it came, and after it the long, sudden, yolk-yellow parcel of life in a smoking slither of oils and soups and syrups, and the body lay born beside the hacked-off head. And what do you say about that? Um, these next two poems are from Ted Hughes' 1983 book called River. a good change of uh, a good change of mood here this is some of the most beautiful nature poetry that I know this is a four-part poem of his called four March watercolors let me make sure I haven't skipped anything again just to be sure I have not good 
four March watercolors. Earth is just unsettling her first faint scents. My shadow, soft-edged on the drying pale sand, among baby nettles, where a floodwater whirled and sowed it. The blue is a daze of bubbly fire, naked ushering and nursing of electricity with caressings of air. Earth, mud-stained, stands in sparkling beggary. Bergs of old snowdrifts, still stubborn in shadows. The river acts fishless. It is fully occupied with its calisthenics, its twistings and self-wrestlings. The pool by the concrete buttress has just repaired its intricate engine, now revs at full bore underground under my foot sole. Tries to split the foundations, running in, testing and testing. Spring is over there, tits exciting the dour oak, Cows soften their calls into the far, crumbling, soft calling of ewes. The land hangs tremulous. It pays full attention to each crow-caw, turning full face to the entering, widening, flame-cord, burrowing havoc of a jet. Wild, stumpy daffodils shiver under the shock wave. nearly a warmth edging this wind. A skylark, solitary, glittering high out over the buoyant upboil. A spice particle from the tumbled-out, hump-backed, bursting bales of river. Spring just hesitates. She can't quite say what she feels yet. She's numb and pale, but she's here and looking at everything first morning of real convalescence. The river is hard at it, tries and tries to wash and revive a bedraggle of dirty bones. Primitive, radical, engine of Earth's renewal, a solution of all dead ends and all-out evacuation through the sea, all debts of wings and fronds of eyes, nectar, roots, hearts, returning cancelled to solvency, back to the sea's big rethink. While the field full of novelty lambs, suns and sprawls mid-morning, high-headed, happy, supposing here is a goodness that will stay forever. A blue tit de-rusts its ratchet. We trees, we tall ones, sunning, somewhat mutilated, inured by one more winter to this muddy, heedless earth, into our scaly, provisional bodies. Relax. Enjoy the fraternity of survival, even a hope of new leaf. The river concentrates its work, its wheels churn. Foam at the pool tail blazes tawny. Thrashing tight, blown flames, bleeding the valley older. An inch of snow whitened last night, and the world slipped back under. 
this morning, touch precarious snow fledged all complexities of trees and perfected fields. By noon, the earth's absorbed it. A ewe, steep-spined, is lowering herself to the power coils of the river's bulge to replenish her udder. And a big-thumbed buzzard swirls to a stall over the wood-top opposite, mewing, now settling, heavy with domestic purpose. Clouds lift anchors. The world tries its weights. All these branches are jammed solid with confidences, a market of gossip. A spider has found me. The river epic rehearses itself, embellishes afresh and afresh each detail, baroque superabundance, earth mouth brimming, but the snow melt is an invisible restraint. If there are salmon under it all, they are in a coma. They are stones lodged among stones, sealed as fossils under the grained pressure. I look down onto the pour of melted chocolate. They look up at a guttering lamp through a sandstorm boil of silt that scratches their lidless eyes, fumes from their gill petals. They have to toil, trapped face workers in their holes of position under the mountain of water. Up here, a lightness breathes, a morning sleep lightness, a glow on the closed eyelids, or seen through the wet cracks of eyelashes, a crammed and justly pushing of crow-tended, buzzard-adjusted germination. Now, only hour after hour of the sweating, speechless labor of trees, and the long ropes of light hauling the river's cargo, the oldest commerce. And I could be saying so much right now, but uh, um, I just want to read these poems. These are, um, these are poems to live by, really. This, I think, is probably Ted Hughes' best poem, and um, I will be including it in an episode coming up of just great poems where we go over the poem and its history and its revision and uh, and just look at it closely. But uh, everything that Hughes was able to do, I think, comes together in this poem called October Salmon. And I think somewhere uh, his sister or his editor, someone says, someone remarks, that he wrote this poem while his father was dying. And I think it brings an awful lot of autobiography in here as well. The, the images from Remains of Elmet, the, the place where he found a connection to nature, but also an awareness of uh, the industry nearby that was ruining that nature, and of giving the natural world and animals an immense dignity, uh, something that you can learn from yourself, um, something that isn't merely cynical either, 
but is uh, uplifting as well in the end. Um, all of that is right here. And actually, what I will do at the end of this episode is uh, I will play a recording, just so you can hear Hughes himself reading. He's a remarkable reader of his own work. The poem that you will hear him read is this poem, October Salmon. But until then, I will do my best with it. He's lying in poor water, a yard or so depth of poor safety, maybe only two feet under the no protection of an outleaning small oak, half under a tangle of brambles. After his two thousand miles, he rests, breathing in that lap of easy current in his graveyard pool. About six pounds weight, four years old at most, and hardly a winter at sea, but already a veteran, already a death-patched hero. So quickly it's over, so briefly he roamed the gallery of marvels, such sweet months, so richly embroidered into earth's beauty dress, her life robe, now worn out with her tirelessness, her insatiable quest, hangs in the flow, a frayed scarf. An autumnal pod of his flower, the mere hull of his prime, shrunk at shoulder and flank. With the sea-going aurora borealis of his April power, the primrose and violet of that first upfling in the estuary, ripened to muddy dregs, the river reclaiming his sea metals. In the October light, he hangs there, patched with leper cloths. Death has already dressed him in her clownish regimentals, her badges and decorations, mapping the completion of his service, his face a ghoul mask, a dinosaur of senility, and his whole body a fungoid anemone of canker. Can the caress of water ease him? The flow will not let up for a minute. What a change from that covenant of polar light to this shroud in a gutter. What a death in life to be his own specter. His living body become death's puppet, dulled by death in her crude paints and drapes. He haunts his own staring vigil and suffers the subjection and the dumbness and the humiliation of the role. And that is how it is. That is what is going on there, under the scrubby oak tree, hour after hour. That is what the splendor of the sea has come down to, and the eye of ravenous joy, king of infinite liberty, and the flashing expanse, the bloom of sea life, on the surge ride of energy, weightless, body simply the armature of energy, in that earliest sea freedom, the savage amazement of life, the salt mouthful of actual existence, with strength like light. Yet this was always with him. This was inscribed in his egg. In this chamber of horrors is also home. He was probably hatched in this very pool. 
and this was the only mother he ever had, this uneasy channel of minnows under the mill wall with bicycle wheels, car tires, bottles, and sunk sheets of corrugated iron. People walking their dogs trail their evening shadows across him. If boys see him, they will try to kill him. All this, too, is stitched into the torn richness, the epic poise that holds him so steady in his wounds, so loyal to his doom, so patient in the machinery of heaven. And that, <laughs> that to me is just one of the great poems, period. Um, I'll save all of my comments on it for the episode I do about it, but um, that is one to memorize. And, and I'm pretty sure that my recitation of it sounds just like Hughes, or it, it, it at least uh, matches the rhythms of it and the, uh, the amount of time it takes, because I've been listening to it over and over, and also just reading it over and over again. I can't get enough of that poem. That is something to have on your mind late at night in the dark when you can't sleep or just driving or walking during the day. Um, I know of nothing else like that. Uh, one more poem here, and this is a poem from his last collection called Birthday Letters. This is the one that uh, where he finally dealt with his relationship to Sylvia Plath. And if you take some time out to learn a bit, a bit, a bit about his biography, if you uh, click on the links to those episodes where I uh, read a long letter that he wrote uh, about Plath's death and about the need for privacy and for people not to turn he and Plath into symbols, um, but to instead just imagine them as two married people who made awful decisions and awful mistakes, and who, at the end of his life, claimed that not being able to or forcing himself not to write about Sylvia Plath sort of handcuffed him somehow and ruined his poetry to, to finally come out with a poem like this in this book that he believed freed him somehow. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. As we know, uh, Plath committed suicide with her and Hughes's two children um, in the house, and uh, that informs uh, this, this poem. What can I tell you that, and by the way, this poem is called Life After Death, and the you of all of these poems in birthday letters is Plath herself. Life after death. What can I tell you that you do not know of the life after death? Your son's eyes, which had unsettled us with your Slavic, Asiatic, epicanthic fold, but would become so perfectly your eyes, became wet jewels, the hardest substance of the purest pain as I fed him in his high white chair. 
Great hands of grief were ringing and ringing his wet cloth of face. They wrung out his tears. But his mouth betrayed you. It accepted the spoon in my disembodied hand that reached through from the life that had survived you. Day by day his sister grew, paler with the wound she could not see or touch or feel, as I dressed it each day with her blue Breton jacket. By night I lay awake in my body, the hanged man, my neck nerve uprooted, and the tendon which fastened the base of my skull to my left shoulder, torn from its shoulder root and cramped into knots. I fancied the pain could be explained if I were hanging in the spirit from a hook under my neck muscle. Dropped from life, we three made a deep silence in our separate cots. We were comforted by wolves. Under that February moon and the moon of March, the zoo had come close. And in spite of the city, wolves consoled us. Two or three times each night, for minutes on end, they sang. They had found where we lay. And the dingoes the, and the Brazilian-maned wolves all lifted their voices together with the gray northern pack. The wolves lifted us in their long voices. They wound us and enmeshed us in their wailing for you, their mourning for us. They wove us into their voices. We lay in your death in the fallen snow, under falling snow, as my body sank into the folktale, where the wolves are singing in the forest for two babes who have turned in their sleep into orphans beside the corpse of their mother. And how is that for someone turning a lifelong interest in myth to do that with his own life, the death of his own wife, the survival of his two children. Um, that is what mythology is for. That is what history and ritual and uh, liturgy are for, not for any other thing you might imagine, I think. Well, with that, I will include one other thing here. And this is me from that earlier episode again, reading a letter from Ted Hughes that he wrote when he was in his 60s to the mother of a young poet. And I think it serves as a good uh, explanation of where Hughes was. And I just didn't want to put it anywhere else in this episode except at the very end, because I think the poems should be allowed to sit by themselves. And then after that, to close out this episode will be a recording of Hughes reading his poem, um, October Salmon. So, as always, thank you very much for listening.
When the British poet Ted Hughes was 63 years old, in 1993, he sent a letter to a woman whose son was 16 years old and who wanted to become a poet. Hughes spent a good deal of his time judging the poetry competitions of high school students, if you can believe that. That's not usually what you hear when you hear about Ted Hughes. And what he writes to the mother of this young poet serves, I think, as the perfect introduction to Hughes's work, which I am going to collect here at the end of this introduction that I'm going to give now, about four or five hours of poetry that I've read from Hughes's even larger body of work of more than a thousand pages. And it seems that what he writes to this mother of a young poet uh, is, is pretty perfect, pretty spot on. And this is what he says. The most important things are not technical virtuosity or ability to find apt, surprising images, because almost anybody with enough motivation and guidance can learn to produce those, and they are important eventually. The most important thing in the, the most important things in the 16-year-old writer are these. An authentic subjective grasp of his or her own sensibility, or at least a strong tendency towards that, towards trusting their own feelings, their own view of things, towards taking responsibility for their own differentness from other people. Second, a strong instinct for the musical priority in verse, not just for the sequence of sounds, vowels, and consonants in the line, but for the cadence of each line, and the contrast of each line's cadence with what went before and what comes after it. This is crucial because the musical component of verse is an expression of body, and of the deeper three quarters of the nervous system, and without cooperation, the full cooperation of all that, then real writing cannot develop. Third, a feeling hard to analyze that verse is the natural and perhaps only expression for that person, if that person is going to express themselves at all. And fourth, a sense of compulsion behind what is written. This may be the most important of all, a sense that a real situation, a real psychological predicament, is insisting on finding expression in demanding, is demanding the means. And Hughes goes on to say, and the woman's son's name is Gerard, she, he says, it seems to me that Gerard's poems have these four essentials quite strongly. All that he needs is patience to defend his corner on his own terms through the next few years. I did it by ignoring my contemporaries, though I had no pop world to contend with, no popular culture world. I did have the jazz world, which I ignored. And digging my foxhole in the works of a few great figures of the past, as well as in folklore. My figures were Yeats, Blake, Shakespeare, and Beethoven. But I also devoured Hole, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Hardy, 
Eliot, Keats, Wordsworth, Shelley, and Wilfred Owen. By the age of 21, I knew all of Yeats's lyrics by heart and a great deal of Shakespeare, some whole plays. I did this not only because I became addicted to them, but to defend myself, as people enter religion to defend themselves. And I read a lot, aloud. All that time, I had no idea what I would do, except that I would somehow write. My mother despaired, but she also supported me. So did my father. I just hacked away at my own path. Can Gerard make anything of this? Well, my blessings on him. Yours sincerely, Ted Hughes. And then he adds a P.S. that uh, that I'm pretty sure my English teacher, when I was 16, told my mother at uh, parent-teacher conferences. Hughes writes this. Uh, P.S. Nearly all 16-year-olds write a lot about death, part of their new craving for ultimate experience and for grasping reality. And the wonderful thing about that note is that the, the footnote to that letter says, uh, neither the mother nor her son Gerard have been identified, so we wonder what happened to Gerard. And in case you think I'll let the, uh, the slight on the jazz world go, um, as usual, especially with my uh, episodes on Seamus Heaney, I don't read off what uh, a poet is interested in because I think it's a prescription of some kind. You should go out and ignore whatever pop culture is and jump into Yeats, Blake, Shakespeare, and Beethoven. These lists, if anything, are, uh, if they're examples at all, they are examples of finding out what your list would be. Someone else out there would have embraced jazz and ignored Beethoven, Yeats, and Shakespeare, and by all means, do that if, as Hugh says, you have moved towards taking responsibility for your own differentness from other people. If you aren't just following fads, follow wherever it is that you're going to go. He's lying in poor water, a yard or so depth of poor safety. Maybe only two feet under the no protection of an outleaning small oak, half under a tangle of brambles. After his 2,000 miles, he rests, breathing in that lap of easy current in his graveyard pool. About six pounds weight, Four years old at most, and a bare winter at sea, but already a veteran, already a death-patched hero. So quickly it's over. So briefly he roamed the gallery of marvels. Such sweet months, so richly embroidered into earth's beauty dress, her life robe, now worn out with her tirelessness, her insatiable quest hangs in the flow, a frayed scarf. An autumnal pod of his flower, the mere hull of his prime, shrunk at shoulder and flank, 
with a seagoing aurora borealis of his April power, the primrose and violet of that first upfling in the estuary ripened to muddy dregs, the river reclaiming his sea metals. In the October light, he hangs there, patched with leper cloths. Death has already dressed him in her clownish regimentals, her badges and decorations, mapping the completion of his service, his face a ghoul mask, a dinosaur of senility, and his whole body a fungoid anemone of canker. Can the caress of water ease him? The flow will not let up for a minute. What a change from that covenant of polar light to this shroud in a gutter. What a death in life to be his own spectre. His living body become death's puppet, dulled by death in her crude paints and drapes. He haunts his own staring vigil and suffers the subjection and the dumbness and the humiliation of the role. And that is how it is. That is what is going on there, under the scrubby oak tree, hour after hour. That is what the splendor of the sea has come down to. And the eye of ravenous joy, king of infinite liberty in the flashing expanse, the bloom of sea life, on the surge ride of energy, weightless, body simply the armature of energy, in that earliest sea freedom, the savage amazement of life, the salt mouthful of actual existence with strength like light. Yet this was always with him. This was inscribed in his egg. This chamber of horrors is also home. He was probably hatched in this very pool. And this was the only mother he ever had, this uneasy channel of minnows under the mill wall with bicycle wheels, car tires, bottles, and sunk sheets of corrugated iron. People walking their dogs trail their evening shadows across him. If boys see him, they will try to kill him. All this, too, is stitched into the torn richness, the epic poise that holds him so steady in his wounds, so loyal to his doom, so patient in the machinery of heaven. Thank you. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the link in the post description where you can learn about different ways of supporting this podcast. You can also support this podcast by going to wordandsilence.com, where you can buy copies of my two books of poetry, To the House of the Sun and Bone Antler Stone, as well as a collection of short stories, The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And as always, thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus 
the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.